Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Outsmarting Infertility Podcast. Trying to conceive with polycystic ovarian syndrome um, involves treating a variety of factors. Polycystic ovarian syndrome, I find, uh, although it can be in the same diagnosis given to 10 different patients, it can present very uniquely and differently in each individual patient. Uh, and not only does this make for uh, potentially a little bit more complications for, for treatment, but even for diagnosis for a lot of patients where in Canada it's been seen that uh, patients have to often speak to upwards of three healthcare providers before they're officially diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome. Some have to speak with over uh, five or more healthcare providers before they're given that diagnosis of PCOS. Uh, and that diagnosis is a first step towards the, the appropriate treatment and indicated treatment to help these patients conceive, right? So with PCOS, um, one of the main factors uh, that contributes to the inability to conceive is, and this isn't potentially present in all patients, but a large portion of them have a bit of difficulty with ovulation. So we call that anovulatory cycles or just oligomenorrhea, where the patient is no longer having menses because they're not ovulating. And so this is an interesting concept as well, where patients sometimes have regular menstruation and so they assume you know, they must be ovulating. With PCOS, it's actually um, potent, a, a possibility that you can have a period and it might just be an estrogen breakthrough bleed or an estrogen withdrawal bleed and not a uh, progesterone withdrawal bleed as we would see in someone who has had a successful ovulation. So estrogen uh, breakthrough meaning that the, the estrogen is persistent uh, in re- relative, relative to progesterone, uh, it's unopposed and as that uterine lining continues to thicken, uh, it doesn't have the progesterone there to help maintain that lining. So it will eventually shed and lead to a flow. And sometimes that can occur like clockwork for patients. So it looks like it's 28 days or 30 days and patients will, excuse me, often go on um, for months thinking that they're having successful ovulation and cycles and then they're unable to conceive. And when we do the appropriate testing, we find out they're actually not ovulating in, in some of these cases. Um, so there are a variety of treatments and, and some of them are medications that are now available um, that are, off, are often offered to patients to help them ovulate, but not all patients with PCOS will actually respond. And the question is why? Um, why do some patients respond really well to a medication to help them ovulate and some do not? Um, where they will either start with the lowest dose of the medication and they'll keep going up on the doses and they won't see an improvement. Um, Or sometimes it will ovulate for a a few number of cycles, but then after the initial response, they'll see a diminishing um, response. It won't ovulate as well. The follicle won't grow as big as it was before. So we have uh, patients who are what we can call poor responders and then patients with PCOS that are more optimal or good responders. Um, to these types of interventions. And so a new research paper published uh, recently tried to investigate more into why do some patients with PCOS um, see more healthy ovulation and some patients with PCOS, even with the medication, aren't getting that regular ovulation or aren't seeing the response we would hope for where we see a large 
mature dominant follicle, which leads to ovulation. And once ovulation occurs, um, obviously there's that ovulatory window in which conception can occur and then therefore implantation and a successful pregnancy. So that's the goal with these medications. So when patients don't respond to that treatment, it's usually a, um, a point of stress, confusion and frustration on, you know, why isn't this supposed helpful treatment or therapy not working for them that other people talk about and say, you know, has helped them so much or helped them get pregnant. So we're seeing that there's one specific hormone and we know this from before with polycystic ovarian syndrome, it can be outside of the normal range for this for um, this particular group of patients. But this hormone prevents can prevent ovulation. It can prevent um, the, the ovary from recruiting more follicles into what we call the dominant follicle pool. So the, the, the group of follicles that are going to be actively stimulated, matured, and hopefully go to a size where they're able to ovulate and lead to a healthy egg. So this hormone, anti-malarian hormone, or AMH for short, um, is produced by the follicles. And with PCOS, we usually see that this hormone is a lot higher than where it should be. So in uh, Canada, we usually use the, the unit nanograms per uh, milliliter. So if it's going up above two, three, four, sometimes it can even be close to as 10 uh, in some patients with PCOS, this, this AMH value. And if it goes higher and higher, we see the chances of them responding to this medication or treatment or them ovulating goes lower and lower. So it's an inverse correlation. So as the AMH level for the patient goes higher, the chances of them succeeding and seeing a healthy ovulation goes lower, unfortunately. So AMH isn't just um, a marker of egg reserve, which is usually what it's more often um, referred to as, you know, we'll, we'll check AMH levels or patients will have it checked at the fertility clinic um, to help determine if the egg reserve is good or not. But the AMH in itself um, prevents these follicles from joining the, the dominant follicle pool. So it's kind of like hitting the brakes on ovulation. It's very hard to ovulate um, if your, your ovary is actively producing a hormone. That's sole message or one of the main messages or signals is to actually suppress ovulation. So the mechanism through which these medications work to increase ovulation is usually they will increase the production of FSH, follicle stimulating hormone, which is produced from the pituitary gland in the brain. And the FSH is kind of like hitting the gas um, on the ovary, so it's trying to increase follicle growth and help hopefully develop a nice, dominant, mature follicle that can lead to healthy ovulation. So if you have your foot on the brake and then you're trying to step on the gas, it's gonna be hard to move that vehicle, so to speak. <laughs> so with an ovary, it's, it's in a similar situation where AMH is suppressing ovulation and FSH is trying to tell the ovary, you know, make a follicle, mature it, let's try and get to ovulation there. So AMH will bind to um, AMH2 receptors usually in the ovary, and that's how it impacts um, or reduces the chances of ovulation. We're seeing there's actually certain nutrients um, that if they're in, present in certain amounts or in healthy amounts in the body, it can actually reduce the impact that AMH has on the ovary. So we'll see even though AMH is high um, in a lot of these patients, we can potentially impact the amount of the AMH2 receptors on the ovary. So what this essentially does is it will lessen or can lessen for some of these patients the impact that AMH has on 
ovulatory inhibition. So we can reduce that inhibitory signal in some of these patients where they'll start to get more spontaneous ovulation or they'll respond better uh, to medication as well. So sometimes it's the level of AMH, sometimes it's the level of these AMH2 receptors, and it's not very clear in the research yet, you know, how, uh, what the complex uh, interaction and how to determine who might be at risk of, of not responding to typical ovulation induction treatments as, we, as they're called. Um, but the AMH marker can be a good step forward in helping to identify if that's going to be an obstacle for patients with PCOS or if you have PCOS, if that's going to be an obstacle for you to ovulate successfully or if you're using medications and it's not working, the AMH may actually provide some more insight as to why you might not be ovulating even with medication. Um, so that's a, a test that can be run by any healthcare provider. We often run it for our patients as well with PCOS um, to understand if this is an underlying factor or not. And that um, will obviously um, help us determine what the most appropriate treatment or therapy, uh, supportive therapy for patients that are doing uh, assisted reproductive uh, technologies like IUI, IVF, or trying to conceive just with medication, or they're trying naturally uh, as well. Um, and then there's other integrative therapies that have also been shown to potentially be beneficial for patients with PCOS trying to uh, have regular ovulation, um, such as fertility acupuncture, which has been observed to increase the, the frequency of spontaneous ovulation for patients with PCOS. So again, PCOS isn't something that um, has just one treatment option. It looks very different for different patients and the type of PCOS they have and what are the presenting symptoms and what's showing up on the blood work for them, um, which needs to be assessed uh, in an initial consultation there. Uh, and so, you know, these nutrients, the acupuncture, the medications, it all, um, we try and look for, you know, what is the most um, easiest and indicated and evidence-based uh, treatment plan that can help a patient with PCOS start to ovulate more regularly, which is not the only step, but an important first step in helping to ensure a higher likelihood of success with fertility treatments. The information covered in this podcast is for educational purposes only. It is not a replacement for medical consultation or medical advice. Please speak with your licensed healthcare provider prior to making any changes to your treatment plan and or medications. Thank you.